I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, the passage, despite Blair's best efforts that I'm going to preach on this morning. <laughs> okay, from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Let's pray. So Father, we want to thank you for the way that you've spoken to us in Pamela's baptism. Just for the kind of witness that that is to what Jesus Christ is able to do in our lives as our lives are given to you. And now we pray. Speak to each one of us here now through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a, a few months ago now, I, I went along to visit Pamela, who's just been baptized this morning, and her husband Ian, to discuss membership basically with them. And the situation was that they'd both applied to become members here at Hamilton Baptist Church, having previously been members at Central Baptist Church in Dundee. But looking at our membership form, a, a problem came up. You see, Pamela came to faith, and then, as she shared, at 16 years old, she was baptised by sprinkling in the Church of Scotland. We, though, as a church, require baptism by immersion as an expression of faith and we do that because we feel that only this does justice 
to the symbolism of the language used in relation to baptism in the New Testament because we feel that this is truly the biblical way. Now Pamela, though, struggled with this because she was a pastor of faith when she got baptized. She was baptized then as an act of obedience to God. So to be baptized now by immersion, would this be a denial of her earlier baptism? Would this be a denial of her experience then? Well, let me be clear, I want to be clear here, I had a lot of sympathy for Pamela in that dilemma. Because I do believe that faith, faith in Jesus Christ as God, as Saviour and Lord, that this is above all else the crucial element in baptism. With the method, the means of baptism being of importance, yes, but of secondary importance in comparison to that faith dimension, that dimension that was there when Pamela was baptized. Another thing that made me sympathetic towards Pamela is I'm not sure that any denomination has really got it totally right in regard to baptism. I mean, as Baptists, we think, and I'm sure we have, we've got the faith part right. That a person, before they're baptized, should be at a stage where they can make a conscious commitment to Christ, again, as God and as Savior and Lord. And I believe that, by and large, we've also got the, the method of baptism right, too. The immersion was the biblical way. Because this alone ties in with the, the language of, of death and resurrection, burial and resurrection, that the Bible say in, in Romans chapter 6 uses in regard to baptism. For example, Romans 6 verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, you can see, can't you? I'm sure you can that that lines up very much with what you've witnessed this morning with baptism by immersion of a believer, but not really with the sprinkling of a baby. However, baptism in the New Testament also took place soon after conversion, as it did for this Ethiopian eunuch. And it was also tied in with church membership. Now, do we hear always get that right. When people often wait for years after their conversion to be baptized until they are ready. That's what we hear. Well, I want to say, listen, if by ready we mean that we've reached some stage where we're worthy, then we're never ever going to be ready. You see, we need to get it. We need to grasp it and understand that baptism absolutely isn't about us. It isn't about us having reached a certain standard. It isn't that. Baptism is about faith in Jesus Christ. It's about our trusting in him as our Savior and Lord. It's about us claiming his righteousness and committing ourselves in the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to live then a changed life, not a perfect life. You know, we'll never live that. This side of heaven, but a changed life. This is what you need for baptism. 
Nothing more and nothing less. And this should be the part of the experience of any newly, truly converted man or woman or boy or girl. And then in Baptist churches, we've got the additional problem of of church membership, where even after baptism, sometimes people seem to think that church membership is a kind of optional add-on, an optional extra. You know, you just don't find that in the New Testament. Christians were expected to be committed to a local church. So Baptists have maybe got the main things right about baptism. But let me tell you, we definitely haven't got it all right. Now with this in mind, in my mind, and knowing that Pamela had in her baptism that that crucial element of faith, the method wasn't fully biblical in my view, but faith was there. Well, I have to say, I approached the front door of the Hunter house once I found it, which can be quite a challenge, but I approached it with a degree of trepidation, knowing that I couldn't and wouldn't want to deny the validity of Pamela's baptism at the time she was baptised. Rather, that what we're, we've seen today, that this would be a completion, if you like, of her earlier baptism. This would be a way of her demonstrating in a fuller, truly biblical way what her faith in Jesus Christ was all about. So I was going there to ask her to be baptized by immersion as a witness of her love for God, as an expression of her desire to be fully obedient to God, and also as an expression of love towards this church so that she and Ian could be totally part of the church family here. But, you know, I've been involved in these kind of discussions before. And, you know, often they're not easy. It's not that they're nasty, never that, but it can be difficult as people sometimes feel that they've been asked to, to in a way, disavow, to turn their back on their past. So you can imagine then how I felt when, as soon as I got through the door, Pamela told me straight away, I've been reading my Bible and praying about baptism this week, and I feel that God's been telling me to be baptized. You know, I was all built up for it. And then she ran through her reasons for this, which line up just about exactly with what I was going to say to her. Talk about unexpected. Talk about a surprise. I was made to feel totally superfluous by God. And you know, I loved it. I did. But you see, it's that experience of the the unexpected that's drawn me to this passage today. Because almost everything in this incident, from the individuals involved to what happened, to the results that then flowed from it, almost every part is unexpected. Totally unexpected. As you'll see, as we begin here by looking first at the unexpected for Philip. For you see, Philip, just prior to this incident we read of here, he'd been at the center of a a ministry in Samaria that was incredibly successful. He'd been breaking new ground for the gospel. Miracles were accompanying his preaching. And most importantly, people were being converted. Acts 8, 12 says, When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So here is, is Philip then ministering in what was a relatively densely populated urban area. 
And seeing a, a wonderful harvest with the potential for an even greater future harvest, seemingly self-evident. And what happens? He's then told by God, told by an angelic messenger sent by God, to leave this ministry behind him. To leave the city behind him. And to go out to the desert road. Go out, literally, to the middle of nowhere. Now what it's uh, helpful, I think, to understand here is that, that this journey from Samaria to this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza actually involved a journey of at least 60 miles for Philip by foot in the searing heat of the Middle East. So this must have been unexpected. And this was certainly a surprise. And then when he arrives at this road, in the middle of nowhere, what does he find? He finds one single, probably ox-drawn chariot coming towards him. Now, now think about this. This journey of 60 miles had not only taken Philip from a bustling city to a desert, it had also taken him from a place where he was something of a celebrity to seeming obscurity. How would you feel if that was demanded of you? I know how I would feel. I wouldn't be very happy. I would be doing all I could to convince myself that this wasn't really what God was saying and what he was asking of me. And yet, there is no hint of hesitancy, of any disinclination on Philip's part to do what was asked of him. That for me again, that is surprising and unexpected. So what's the secret then? What's the secret of a man like Philip? Well, I think this story from the, the latter days of one of the most prominent Christian ministries of the 20th century, E. Stanley Jones, maybe gives us some pointers. And it's a, about a conversation that he had while he was in a care home after a, a major stroke, a stroke that left him virtually immobile. And he mentions in, in a, a book he, he wrote just after this, a conversation he had during this time with another resident there, a retired Bishop, And this is what he wrote. When he was no longer in the limelight of the bishopric, he was frustrated. And he told me so. He wanted to know the secret of victorious living. I told him that it was self-surrender. That the difference was in giving the innermost self totally to Jesus. In his case, when the outer strands of his life were broken by retirement, the inner strands were not enough to hold him. Now, I believe this is something of what we see here in Philip. That he was totally surrendered to Jesus. His ministry was all about Jesus. And while he maybe enjoyed the popularity, the acclaim that can go along with a successful ministry, yet he didn't live for that. And so when God led him away from the limelight, led him away from the backslapping and all the benefits of, of minor celebrity, then, well, I don't know, maybe that might have hurt him for a little bit, for a little while. Yet, as we see here, it didn't phase Philip. And it certainly didn't stop him from going on doing 
what he had been doing, faithfully serving the Jesus who he loved with all his heart. Now you see, in our lives, some of us might find ourselves at one point or another taken from positions and taken maybe from ministries or whatever of relative prominence and placed in obscurity. Sometimes that's the way some of us might feel just advancing years. That's what happens. For some of us it might seem that that we perhaps live the whole of our lives in obscurity. That we're never that person who gets noticed. What matters, I believe, is how do we deal with that? Do we get angry? Do we get embittered? Do we get maybe jealous at, at those who we feel are getting on in life, those who we feel are getting noticed while we aren't? Or alternatively, do we just keep on faithfully serving the Jesus that we love with all our hearts, wherever he's placed us? I tell you, I believe that's one of the greatest tests of spiritual depth and maturity that we can find in life. And I truly believe, truly believe, that there are many Christians who are quietly working away, serving God unnoticed, but are pleasing God, who are a blessing to God. In a way that many of the so-called celebrity Christians, who the church at times give honor to, are actually failing to do. But let's move on to look at the unexpected for this eunuch. For the unit, now, let's just get a few things clear about this man. He was an Ethiopian. He was from Africa. He was a eunuch serving Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, suggesting, I believe, that he'd been castrated so that he could serve in the queen's harem, an area that was usually off-limits to men. And then that he'd so distinguished himself in her service that he had risen to basically be her Chancellor of the Exchequer, to be what at the time would be a very high-ranking civil servant. Also, here we're told that he was on his way back at this point to Ethiopia after travelling to Jerusalem to worship. Now, on the surface, that might not seem a statement of, of much significance, but let me just put a bit of flesh, if you like, on the bones here. At that time, a journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem would have taken at least five months. And that's each way. So this man then had committed himself to taking what must have been a year of his life out, if you like, so that he could go to Jerusalem and worship the God of Israel there in his temple. I think that tells us an awful lot about this man. That he'd heard of the God of Israel. That he'd been impressed by the God of Israel. And he'd become a devoted adherent to that God to the extent that he was ready to undertake this kind of journey. However, you see, a man like this, and he would have known this, a man like this could never be a part of the committed core of God's people. He could never convert to Judaism. At best, all he could ever be was a, a non-Jewish, gentle, Gentile God-fearer standing on the fringes of Israel. Because you see, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, that's part of the ritual law of the Old Testament, 
makes it clear that a man who's been mutilated in this kind of way may never enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, what it would seem this, this was all about, by the way, was that often eunuchs, that they, they were a part, they were involved in the worship of pagan gods. So you see, this was an attempt by ritual law to keep the physical purity of God's people. But with this always intended to point to the far more important need for God's people to always seek to be spiritually pure. But you know, maybe all of this was going round this man's head as he rode in his chariot. Maybe it was all kind of moving around, trying to, to reconcile in his mind his physical impurity with his desire, his heart's desire to spiritually to be a part of God's people. But the passage he was reading was from Isaiah, from the servant songs, part of the famous servant songs of Isaiah, from Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So he's there, reading this, when suddenly this Jewish man draws alongside his chariot. And here, don't get any idea of Philip wearing something like Marty's jet-propelled shoes from Back to the Future. Not that. For you see, the oxen that were in all probability pulling this chariot at this point, they just don't go fast. But don't you think it would be unexpected? That it would be a surprise to this man to find a Jew draw alongside his chariot in the desert just at the point he was reading this passage. And don't you think it would be unexpected and surprising for Philip to, drive, to travel to the desert to find one man in his chariot? One man from a faraway exotic land and yet to find him reading this passage. This particular passage from Isaiah, a passage that is a perfect lead-in to the good news of Christ and the salvation that he brings. And then this, this eunuch throws what's already an open door, even more wide open, by the question he asks. Verse 34. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself? Or someone else? Because you see, this was one of the, the questions that the, the great teachers of Israel couldn't really get their minds around. That they couldn't get to, to grips with. They just couldn't decide who the servant was and where this mysterious suffering servant of the Lord fitted in with their understanding of God and of God's purposes for his people. But let me tell you one thing that they never did was make a connection between this suffering servant and the coming Messiah. The one who is to come to be the deliverer, the redeemer, the rescuer of God's people. Because you see, they saw the Messiah as a royal figure. They saw the Messiah as the heir to the throne of David. 
The one whose work would be to overthrow the Romans who physically ruled Israel and then to raise Israel up and introduce the worldwide reign of God where Israel would rule with him. And they found it impossible to think of limit of linking sorry, this glorious figure with the humiliated, discarded, and ultimately condemned figure of Isaiah's vision of the coming suffering servant of God. But of course, that's just what God did. And that's what this unit's question gave Philip the perfect lead-in to explain. The fact that God's plans were bigger and greater than Israel ever imagined. That God's desire, his aim, was not just to rescue Israel, but in fact to rescue all the nations. And not just to rescue them physically, but rather far more importantly, spiritually. And to do this, not by overthrowing Rome, not by breaking the physical chains that bound them, but rather by overthrowing Satan and all the powers of evil, by breaking the chains of spiritual slavery that he holds men and women in. And Philip goes on to explain how God did this. That God in Christ became a man. That God became a man to be our Messiah, our rescuer, our deliverer. And that on this earth as a man, he lived the perfect, sinless, God-pleasing life that we could never live. And then, on that cross, he died to pay the price of our sin. That sin that separates us from our holy God. He took our punishment there as the suffering servant sent by God. And then on the third day, he then rose again, demonstrating God's power and God's victory over sin, over death, and over all the powers of evil. A victory that by faith in Jesus Christ, that eunuch and that we can share. For by faith in Christ, we gain a new restored relationship with God. A new spiritual beginning. We receive a new life. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the risen Jesus, that power that breaks the chains of sin and Satan that bind us, that power of God enables us to live a new transformed life. A Christ-like life. As we seek God, open our hearts to God, live in obedience to God. Now who could possibly expect a message and a saviour like this? Who could possibly expect that though we turned our back on God and chose sin instead of him, that God could love us so much that he'd be willing to suffer and die for us? Who could expect that? That message must have been unexpected and surprising for this eunuch. I know that it was unexpected and surprising for Pamela when she first heard it. And as it is for every true Christian. That God, 
almighty God who made the heavens and the earth could love us in our weakness and our sin and our ingratitude. That this God could love us that much. And straight away this man wants to do in response what Pamela has done this morning. He wants to be baptized. He wants to be baptized as a demonstration of his faith in Christ. As a symbol of what Jesus has done in his life. And as a declaration of his love for Jesus Christ. But you know there was one unique element to this man's faith experience. Because one of the hopes that in the Bible was looked forward to. At the coming of the Messiah. Is laid out for us by Isaiah in his prophecy in Isaiah 56, verse 4 and 5. And it says there, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose to do what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. Now you see, when we set this in the context of Jesus and of what he has done, then what this is is then saying is that once Jesus, the Messiah, once he has come, there is no longer a need for laws that are are focused on, on the physical but intended to point to the far more important need for spiritual purity. We don't need these laws anymore. Once God has come into our hearts within by the power of the Holy Spirit. Once he has given us spiritual new birth and given us a new desire to be pure and holy for him spiritually and physically. We don't need these laws anymore. So this man then knows at this moment that though he'd not been permitted to become a Jew and so become part of God's people, and that though he'd journeyed five months to get to Jerusalem but still had been kept standing on the outside of the temple, yet now, in that moment, on that lonely desert road, by faith in Jesus Christ, he has become part of the true family of God and this he then marks through baptism then we're told to finish he went on his way rejoicing and no wonder but you know there's one last element of the surprise and perhaps not expected here and that is that the church tradition holds that this particular man went on to form the Ethiopian Orthodox Church a church that, that lives on to this very day. You know, Philip probably never knew about this. Probably never heard. But we do. We know. And so we know why a sovereign God led Philip to that lonely desert road. But this man went on his way rejoicing. Pamela today has expressed that she's rejoicing in God's goodness to her in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, you today can experience something of the surprising and unexpected. 
that can lead to you leaving this place rejoicing in your heart. Now maybe that will happen as, as you see how God took Philip to this obscure place in order to do something amazing through him. Perhaps you can rejoice then that as you are faithful and as you love God with all your heart and give him the best that you have, that God can use your life and God will use your life. Obscure and mundane maybe as you might feel it to be. That he can use it and he will use it in ways that in this life you may never be able to grasp. But use it to do things that will matter in the heaven and the glory to come. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice? But maybe for some of us who are here, the unexpected thing for us today is that today we've perhaps come to see Jesus Christ for who he is and what he can do and mean in our lives in a way that we never have before. We've maybe come to to grasp the greatness of the love of God for us in a way that we never have before. And so today, like that eunuch, we know that we should put our faith, our trust in Jesus. We know that we should be baptized, that we should commit ourselves fully to his church. What I would say to you, is act on it. Do it. So that today you'll be able to leave this church the way that God wants you to. With a joy in your heart that is beyond this world's understanding. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the way that you've been with us and the way that you've spoken to us. I want to thank you for the way that Pamela has shared her faith so clearly. And thank you just for the time that we're going to be able to go and enjoy through in the hall, just eating and sharing and just experiencing all your goodness. Lord, be with us. Speak to our hearts and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.